Morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Peter. If you were here last Sunday, we uh, at both services, actually, both down here and uh, Fane Street and then up at Malone Avenue last Sunday evening, we, we highlighted and drew attention to the importance and the power and the priority of the Word of God. Um, and what we really said was that, that God's Word matters and God's Word happens. Kind of want you to just remember those two phrases this, this morning. God's Word matters. God's Word happens, sometimes with devastating effect. I also made the point last week that we don't always fully understand the Word of God. There are times whenever we find it confusing and troubling, we're left with more questions than answers. And as we read and reflected on 1 Kings 13 last week, I know many of us found the contents of that chapter slightly surprising and shocking. And I say that because quite a few people spoke to me afterwards and admitted that the story of the king and two prophets and a lion, that was a story that had never really registered with them before. It was new to many people last Sunday morning, or it certainly felt new. Uh, well, as we keep reading First Kings, and as Peter said earlier, as we move on into chapter 14, I reckon I predict that that sense of intrigue and head-scratching is kind of going to continue, but what will also continue will be an emphasis on the importance, the power, and the priority of God's Word. We're very definitely carrying on from where we left off. We're kind of underlining and reaffirming what we learned. God's Word matters. God's Word happens. Therefore, we need to listen to it, and we need to take it to heart. If you have a Bible, please, uh, please turn to 1 Kings 14, and we're, we're going to read the first 20 verses together. But as you look that up, let me, let me remind you of one aspect of last week's story that we talked about, and it's this. People who don't acknowledge or worship God on a day-to-day -day basis will often turn to him in a crisis. People who don't worship or acknowledge God on a day-to-day -day basis will often turn to him in a crisis or whenever they need help or whenever they receive devastating news. Non-Christians will pray or they will turn to and confide in a person of faith during difficult times. Last year, I came across this headline in The Guardian, non-believers turn to prayer in a crisis, Paul finds. Let me uh, just read you a few comments from that article. For many non-believers, please God is an instinctive response to a crisis. So perhaps it should not be surprising that a new survey has found that one in five adults pray despite saying they're not religious. Among the non-religious, personal crisis or tragedy is the most common reason for praying, with one in four saying they pray to gain comfort. Henry, who's 64, says he prays every night, kneeling by his bed, despite not being religious. I worry about it quite a lot. Is it some kind of an insurance policy? Is it superstition? Or is it something more real, he asks. Queried about whether he believed in God, he said, I don't know, but I, wouldn't, I would describe myself at the skeptical end of agnosticism. I certainly wouldn't classify myself as religious. Henry starts by silently reciting the Lord's Prayer, and then he asks for his loved ones to be kept safe and well. He said, I've no idea if God hears my prayers. 
but the act of praying makes me feel better. I wonder why I don't stop doing it. Sometimes I feel it's a kind of hypocrisy. It's interesting. It's really interesting that despite not loving God, many people still look to him in times of distress. And I wonder why. I wonder why. I wonder what they're hoping for, what they're expecting to happen. Well, as we re-engage with Jeroboam's story, Jeroboam is king of 10 tribes in the north. What we discover here is a prime example of someone who, despite ignoring God for the most part, turns to him whenever his back's up against the wall. So, as we almost always do at Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's eternally relevant and enduring word. Here it is. This is quite a long reading, uh, and I know lots of people love the fact that we do read big chunks of Scripture, and so I am going to take my time and just read through this, so I hope that's okay. At that time, Abadjah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, go disguise yourself so that you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah, the prophet, is there, the one who told me that I'd be king over his people. Take 10 loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahadjah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahadjah could not see. His sight had gone because of his age, but the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill, and you are to give her such and such an answer. Very specific. When she arrives she will pretend to be someone else. So when Ahadjah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I raised you up from among the people. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster in the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city. And the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried because he's the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now, this is beginning to happen. And the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the river Euphrates. 
because they aroused the Lord's anger by making Asherah poles. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam that he has committed and has caused Israel to commit. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Terzah. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through his prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reigns, his wars, and how he ruled are written in the book of the Annals of the Kings of Israel. He reigned for 22 years, then rested with his ancestors. And Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. Well done, grab a seat. So, Jeroboam's family have faced a real crisis. Their son is sick, and they've no idea what's going to happen to him long term, and, and so they turn to God, or they turn to a man of God, and this is someone who Jeroboam has met before. But I want you to remember last week and the previous week, because Jeroboam has set up other gods to worship. And he's invited other gods to solicit the people's affection. So it's really interesting that when he's facing a crisis, rather than turn to his gods, the ones he set up, the ones he calls all the people to worship, he bypasses them, he ignores them, and he decides to turn to the one true God. Again, why? Why? Did he, did he realize, even though he had set them up and told everybody to worship them, and he even told everybody that these are the gods that brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, did he realize that when it really mattered, they had limits? See, false gods or other gods are appealing. Of course they are. They're entertaining, they're convenient, but they're ultimately hopeless and powerless. And so Jeroboam instead turns to God but he can't bring himself to go to God personally. He can't bring himself to go to the man of God by himself. And again, I wonder why is he embarrassed? Is he too proud? Who knows? But he decides to send his wife, but not as his wife. He wants her to go disguised as someone else. Which again, I want you to think about this. It's a crazy decision. I mean, if you turn to a man of God because you believe he can see into the future, and you believe he knows what's going to happen to your son. I mean, look at verse 3. Jeroboam actually says, he will tell you what will happen to our boy. So Jeroboam believed that this man of God had incredible eyesight. And yet, he doesn't think he can suss out the true identity of the person seeking his help. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. But he goes anyway, or they do it anyway. And sure enough... They don't fool God. Pretending to be someone we're not before God is always futile. Trying to hide your true self before God or before a man of God is senseless. See, the first human beings tried to do this in the garden. They tried to hide from God. But it didn't work then, it never has worked, it never will work. The fact is, the reality is, you cannot disguise yourself before God. You cannot, none of us can hide. Well, Mrs. Jeroboam goes disguised anyway, hoping to hide 
But the irony is, verse 4, a hedge you can't see. It's brilliant. And at one stage he could see, but now he can't see. So what was the point in dressing up? It's been a complete waste of time going undercover. Plus, the word of the Lord kicks in here before anybody has a chance to say anything. In fact, one of the really striking features of this entire episode is that Mrs. Jeroboam never utters a single word, which amongst other things reveals who's really in control here, who's really calling the shots, whose words are actually accomplishing their purposes, certainly aren't hers. Ahijah, who can no longer see, He's told by God, Jeroboam's wife's on her way to meet you. And here's why she's coming. And here's what I want you to say to her, such and such. And by the way, she's going to become pretending to be someone else. It's all in verse 5. It's brilliant. So whenever Ahijah hears the sound of footsteps at her front door, before Mrs. Jeroboam has a chance to knock or say a thing, Ahijah shouts out, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Can you imagine what's going through her mind at that moment? The game is up before it's even started. My cover has been blown and I haven't even said a single thing, but it's what the prophet says next that must have completely disarmed her. And here is one of those questions in scripture that still applies, that still echoes down through history, that still resonates. Why this pretense. Why are you putting on an act? Why the sham? I mean, you can attempt to fool others. You can even succeed at times in fooling others, but you will never get away with pretense before Almighty God. It's back to something we've stressed time and time again. I mean, we, we might look around us today at the outward appearance of others, But as God looks here this morning, he sees hearts. Pretense is pointless before God. God sees the real me this morning. God sees the real you. He really and always knows us. Well, as Ahijah asks this question, Mrs. Jeroboam doesn't answer it. And so Ahijah goes on speaking for another 10 uninterrupted verses. And what he says is bad. He actually has bad news. Or in some of your translations it says he has harsh news to share. This is going to hurt. But before we unpack what he says, let's go back to this idea of seeking God's help in personal crisis. Because you see, it would seem that Jeroboam wanted the help of God, he wanted the word of God in the emergencies of life, but he did not want the rule of God or the word of God over the course of his life. He wanted an occasional word, but he didn't want a consistent word. He wanted crisis intervention, but he did not want routine instruction. And I wonder how many people today adopt a similar approach. God in the moment but not God in the everyday. God on call, but not God in control. Now, I'm not wanting to dismiss Jeroboam's actions completely, or Henry, that 64-year-old who took part in the Guardian survey. 
And I'm certainly not suggesting that God doesn't hear or respond to the cries of help from those who don't worship him. I mean, it is clear that God in his mercy does listen and can respond. But you see, using God as an emergency call-out system or only turning to him on our terms when we're looking or seeking a favor, it is presumptuous at best. It's hypocritical at worst. And I think Henry in that article is very honest in saying, sometimes it feels, even though I don't acknowledge God, I don't worship God, wouldn't describe myself as religious, I turn to God, but quite honestly, I feel like a hypocrite. We want the occasional word, but we want the consistent word. We want crisis intervention. We don't want routine instruction. God on call, but please not God in control. God deserves better. God deserves so much more. So back to the word of the Lord to Jeroboam. Beginning at verse seven, here's what Ahijah says. From God to Jeroboam. Jeroboam, I raised you up from among the people of God, and I appointed you as ruler over my people Israel, and I tore the kingdom away from the house of David. Do you remember? God tore the kingdom away from Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and gave it to Jeroboam, or 10 of the tribes anyway. I did all this for you. See, Jeroboam had experienced and was reminded of the amazing grace of God in his life, but what did he do with it? He threw it back in God's face. He threw it back in God's face. Yeah, God, you did all this for me. You tore the kingdom away from the house of David and you gave it to me and you raised me up to lead the people, but you know what I've done with this. Verse nine, the prophet tells him exactly what he's done. You have done more evil than all who lived before you, Jeroboam. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have aroused God's anger and you've turned your back on God. So Jeroboam receives the grace of God, but in turn he despises it. He's been blessed by God, but he's trashed all those blessings. And why did he do this? What led to this? What caused Jeroboam to do all this? Spelled out in black and white, and in a nutshell, it's these two things. It's disobedience and a lack of commitment. Look at verse eight again. Middle of the verse where it says, but, I did all this for you, Jeroboam, but you've not been like my servant, David. You've not kept my commands. You've not followed me with all your heart. And you've only done what is right, not in my eyes, but you've only done what is right in your eyes. You see, Jeroboam jettisoned God's ways and did life his own method way. But here's the really telling thing. Jeroboam knew how he was meant to live. I said right at the start that Jeroboam had met Ahijah before. Those who have been tracking this series, back in 1 Kings chapter 11, Jeroboam met Ahijah the prophet who said this to him. However, as for you, Jeroboam, this is on God's behalf, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires, Jeroboam. You will be king over all Israel. Again, what a blessing, what a privilege, what grace. But then you read on, this is 1 Kings 11. If you do whatever I command you, and you walk in obedience to me, you do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David, my servant, did. I will be with you, and I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel You see, Jeroboam knew what he had to do. He knew how he had to live, but he did none of it. 
He ignored all of God's word to him, and instead he did evil, more evil than anyone has ever done. He made other gods. He turned his back on the one true God, and therefore consequences now lie in wait. And we'll get to those in a moment, but there is such a powerful lesson in this for all of us because we are a people here this morning who have experienced the grace of God in bucket loads. And even as we sit before this table this morning, we are and we have been reminded of the amazing grace of God that has reached down to us, that has reached out to us in Jesus and saved us, rescued us. For it is by grace that we sit here this morning as rescued people who have been granted life eternal, life in all its fullness. But you know something? We now have a responsibility to live this life. A responsibility to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. A responsibility to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before our God. A responsibility to walk as Christ walked, to obey his commands. Those who say they love Jesus will do as he says. We have a responsibility to make every effort to add to our faith those seven faith add-ons that we thought about recently. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherliness, brotherly affection, love. Grace, yes, absolutely. But responsibility comes as well. Jeroboam received grace, but he abstained from responsibility. Bailed out on it. He wasn't so much blinded by grace, he was bored with it. And so having heard what was expected of him, having listened to the word of God provide guidance for how he was meant to live and do life, Jeroboam chooses to do his own thing, to make his own gods, and to just turn his back on the one true God. And as a result, it's time to face the music. It's time to discover the disastrous consequences. And verses 10 to 16 are a hard read. You see, sin changes the course of history. Sin has a dramatic impact on our lives and on the lives of others around us. But again, none of this should surprise us because God has made it really clear that sin's payout is death. The wages of sin just are, period. And let's recall those famous words of God to Moses that are repeated a number of times in Scripture. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. He is a God of grace. He is slow to anger. He abounds in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. He is a God of grace. But that verse, those verses in Exodus 34 do not stop there. Yet, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Grace and responsibility. Grace and the consequences of ignoring it. And there were three for Jeroboam. And these are hard. And so to start with, Not only is Jeroboam's son going to die the minute that Mrs. Jeroboam sets foot back in her home city, but so is everyone else in the house of Jeroboam. 
Jeroboam's house is going to be burnt up like excrement. And dogs are going to eat those. I mean, this is harsh. Dogs are going to eat those who die in the city. And birds are going to eat those who die in the country. That's the first consequence. Second consequence, verse 14, moves are now afoot to overthrow Jeroboam's dynasty. Third consequence, the whole nation is doomed. Look at verse 15. God is going to destabilize Israel. It's just going to be like a reed waving about in a, in a pond. God's going to destabilize Israel. He's going to uproot them from the land. He's going to scatter them. Here are hints of exile. Worse still, verse 16, he's going to, and these must have been hard words to hear, God is going to give up Israel. Why? Again, end of verse 16, because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. You see, sin is serious and its consequences are acute. They always have been, they always will be. And as you read on here, you discover this is now the beginning of the end. You discover that what God says matters. But maybe even more importantly, what God says happens, just does. It comes to pass. And so Mrs. Jeroboam gets up and she leaves Ahadja. She hasn't spoken a single word. All she has heard is a question and then some harsh news. And she gets up and she leaves. And it says the moment she crosses the threshold of their family home, her son Abadja dies. And if that specific word of the Lord comes true, you can bet your life on the fulfillment of the rest of it. And for those who know the remainder of the story of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you will know that God's word does not return to him empty. Or as Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flowers fall or the flowers fade, but the word of God, it endures, it stands forever. What God says matters. What God says happens. His word is true. And so I cannot stress enough the importance, the power, and the priority of God's word. If we do not prioritize God's word, we are in grave danger of losing so much, possibly even losing our very souls. He or she who has ears, says scripture, let them here. And so it's all over for Jeroboam. And even the final couple of verses that we read together are telling. Here's what it says. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars, and how he ruled, they're all written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel, and he reigned for 22 years, and then he rested with his ancestors. And so what Scripture's really saying is, listen, you can read somewhere in these annals of the kings about what else Jeroboam got up to as king, but actually... None of that really matters anymore. None of that, all his victories in war, how he went on about ruling, none of that are recorded in God's word. Why? Because here's the critical issue. 
The thing that does matter is that Jeroboam did not do what the Lord commanded. He did not follow the Lord, his God, with all his heart as David had done. He didn't worship God and God alone. And therefore, despite the grace of God in his life, he goes down in history as the king who did more evil than all who lived before him. And as the king whose sin set the course of history on a particular trajectory for a very, very, very long time. Disobedience, half-hearted commitment and devotion, compromised worship, devastates lives, devastates society in general. And therefore, may we listen carefully and recognize the importance, the power, and the priority of God's word to us and for us. It matters, it happens. But one final comment. There's a really interesting detail in here that I haven't mentioned. It turns out that Jeroboam's son, don't know how many people picked this up, Jeroboam's son, Abadja, is the only member of the entire house who's going to be buried as opposed to burnt and eaten. The only one. Because Abadja is, to quote, the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. Here you have another hint of hope and grace. But what you've also got is a further telling insight into God's awareness of individual lives and the state of every human heart, irrespective of age. And so may God, who searches us and knows us this morning, may God find more than good in our hearts. May he find his word embedded there. His written word hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against him. And his living word ruling in our hearts so that he is in control. God's word matters, church. God's word happens. Therefore, Listen to it carefully and take it to heart.